Welcome to The Radical Therapist. We are now at episode number 112, and I am Chris Hoff. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great one for you today. I am speaking with Dr. Isaac Prilitensky, and we are going to talk about his book and work, his work around mattering, but uh, specifically his book, How People Matter, Why It Affects Health, Happiness, Love, Work, and Society. This is a book he wrote with his wife, co-author, Ora Prilitensky. Uh, but we are going to be meeting with Dr. Isaac Prilitensky and discussing uh, topics around mattering, um, uh, why it's essential, and also, to, quite honestly, it's dark side and how you know some of the stuff, the problems we have going on in the world today. Uh, are a direct result of actually not mattering and having some not so great folks. Um, um, you'll you'll hear about it. Just stay tuned. <laughs> so, uh, okay, one quick announcement before we get to the interview. Um, those of you that are uh, loyal listeners, thank you very much. You know that I'm working on a project. I'm co-editing the Encyclopedia of Radical Helping, helping Radical Helping, that will be out next year. This is a one-of-a-kind project. It's awesome. It's coming together so beautifully. But we are still looking for more contributors and on different topics. And there's a list. If you go to the Thick Press Medium page, you can just Google that. It'll come up. Or go to Thick Press's Instagram site or the Radical Therapist Instagram. And you can, I think, access the details there. Or just even shoot me an email, theradicaltherapist at gmail.com. And, um, yeah, and you can see, you know, what we're looking for and, and the help we need and some of the topics we'd like covered. Uh, and, yeah, then the deadline's coming quick. So, please, if that's something you want to are interested in participating in, please reach out pretty quick and uh, because we're, you know, we're getting close to pulling this thing together and getting it ready for release next year. And I'm really, really excited about the project, the Encyclopedia of Radical Helping that will be put out by Thick Press. So... Enough about that. Let's um, let's talk about Dr. Isaac Prelitensky. He is an award-winning academic and a former dean of the School of Education and Human Development, the University of Miami, where he currently serves as professor and vice provost uh, for institutional culture. He has also published eleven books and over a hundred and thirty papers. And um, yeah, just really excited to have him here on the Radical Therapist podcast. So without further ado, let's meet Dr. Isaac Prilitensky. Hi, Dr. Prilitensky. Welcome to the Radical Therapist podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. And I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited to talk about your work and, and much of your recent work, including your book written with your wife, Aura. Um, has been around uh, mattering and how it affects health, happiness, love, work, and society. And I thought it might be a good way to start by have you, having you define what mattering is and what is, what is it made up of. Thank you for the question. So mattering is quite simply defined as the experience of feeling valued and the opportunity to add value. So feeling valued and adding value. And when we think about their complementary roles, they really represent a lot of the psychological needs that all human beings share. So feeling valued means being seen, being recognized, appreciated, being treated with respect and dignity, feeling like you're a worthy human being. <laughs> and in our definition of mattering, we concentrate on four domains of life. We are saying that people should feel valued by themselves, the self, others, work, and community. And we believe these are the four main sources of feeling valued. Um, and when one derives a sense of feeling valued, respected, appreciated in all these domains, 
the chances that we will be adding value to ourselves and others is higher. If we just go back to attachment theory, when kids feel valued, they feel safe to explore the world, to make a contribution, to take risks, to be independent, to practice autonomy. So that's pretty much how we see it. Feeling valued is almost a precondition for adding value Mm. to myself, to others, to work and community. Community writ large. You know, it's not just our neighborhood, but also the city where I live, the country where I am a citizen of, etc. So I'll just say one more thing about the definition mm-hmm. of mattering, which is, I just said that feeling valued is a precondition pretty much for adding value. In the best of times, we benefit from feeling valued by ourselves because we internalize positive uh, messages from others and we feel valued by our family, friends, etc. And then I add value to myself and others. That engenders a virtuous cycle because the more I add value to my friends and work and the community, the more I am reinforced. You know, people say, oh, thank you, Isaac, for volunteering. Thank you, Isaac, for your contributions to this task force or whatever it is. And then I feel reinforced to to do more of the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this is in the best of times. In the worst of times, this can become a vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. If I do not feel appreciated or every time I make a contribution, I get criticized. I encounter judgmental attitudes. I feel shame. I am humiliated. Well, I think then I'm not going to feel valued and I'm not going to feel like I can make a contribution to others because every time I raise my hand or I do something, I get criticized. I get um, judged harshly uh, by others. So, That's a bit of a definition, Mm -hmm. feeling valued, adding value, the four components of life, self, others, work, community, and and the vicious or virtuous cycle. Thank you. You you write about this, but I'm wondering if you could share with us, what are some of the effects of the lack of mattering? Yes. So um, I think there are one positive effect and two very serious negative effects. I'll start with a positive effect. Um, When people feel like they don't matter, sometimes they are motivated to take action, positive action. Um, Maybe they are going to start a social movement like Black Lives Matter or Me Too or the Civil Rights Movement. And there are many, many examples throughout history of people who felt marginalized and discriminated against really organizing to to regain their sense of mattering in society. So that's the positive uh, response to lack of mattering. But there are two very negative responses. One is in the form of an internalizing problem. People become depressed, anxious, or disengaged from work. And there are also externalizing problems when people feel like they don't matter. So I'll give you a few examples. Mm. When people feel like they don't matter, they are much more likely to gravitate towards towards fanatic, xenophobic movements. Because maybe there is a leader out there who makes them feel valued. And those leaders are very good at recruiting people Mm. who feel disenfranchised, forgotten, devalued for whatever reason. Right. 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 So there is a lot of research, some of it conducted by my friend and colleague, Arie Kruglansky, on how terrorist groups recruit people. And some of terrorist organizations, they really... have very good recruitment methods, identification of people who feel forgotten by society. Mm -hmm. 
and they see in them an opportunity to regain a sense of mattering by doing some extreme act which will be very much liked by these extremist groups. So in short, there is one positive response and two negatives, you know, internalizing or externalizing. And I just want to say, Chris, that the costs of not mattering to the individual, to the workplace, to society as a whole, the costs are grave. Mm -hmm. People become suicidal. There is research by Gregory Elliott from Brown University about teenagers who feel like they don't matter to their family. When teenagers feel like they don't matter to their family, they are much more likely to contemplate suicide, to become depressed. When an employee in the workplace feels forgotten, neglected, or even abused you know, by their bosses and superiors, they just become disengaged. Mm -hmm. In the US, about 70% of the workforce is disengaged. There is only about 30% of people who are the really there in mind and body and spirit, fully present. Right. And the rest feel disengaged largely because they are given messages that they don't matter, that they don't feel valued, and their contributions are not appreciated. Yeah, thank you for that. And you're seeing so much of that in the extremism that we have going on and how the, you, that's a great point about the recruitment and how the recruitment's happening and the kind of the dark side of mattering, how people, you know, that, um, and how, exactly. it's, how it's used in that way. So, uh, in your book, you write about the entitlement of me culture and how this, how in this culture, I matter is more important than we matter. And I'm wondering if you could say some more about that. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, you may grow up in a very loving family with people who love you, parents, siblings. You may be lucky uh, to have teachers who respect you and value you and make you feel appreciated. But above and beyond our immediate circle of care, it, we are influenced by a whole culture. <laughs> Uh, by social media, by arts and culture and traditions and political discourse and narratives that they are bound to have an impact on us. And when you look at the last few decades, I think uh, there has been an ascendance of what I'm calling a me culture. It's nothing new, really. I mean, you know, people have been talking about individualism and narcissism for a long time. Uh, but th there is evidence, empirical evidence, that narcissism is on the rise in the last uh, couple of decades. And in my attempt to understand what the me culture is, I land on the following uh, messages. I think the, the me culture sends a message to people which is as follows, I have the right to feel valued so that I may be happy. So it's all about I, about rights, about feeling valued, and about being happy. Hmm. Yes, you know, like, yes, we all, we all should be happy. We all have the right to be happy. But the problem is that this neglects the other side of humanity, which is, what about the rest of us? <laughs> what about people outside of your own skin? So I say that the me culture is 50% right about what we need. And the other 50% is what the me, what the we culture offers. So I define a we culture not as I have the right to feel valued so that I can be happy, but rather we all have the right and responsibility, not just to feel valued, but also to add value so that we can all experience not just happiness and wellness, 
but also fairness. So I am I I want everybody to be happy. I I want to be happy. I want you I, I want in my family people to be happy. I want my neighbors to be happy. But that individual happiness must be balanced with our efforts to support other people's happiness. And other people's happiness is not going to take place unless we individually and collectively improve conditions of fairness. So we did some studies where we wanted to see the role of fairness on wellness. And not surprisingly, the more people experience fairness in their lives, all the way from the family to society, as in getting universal health care, support for housing, etc., all the way from the family to social policy, the more people experience fairness, the higher their level of wellness. They are more satisfied with their lives. They are happier. They thrive. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting. But even more interesting, what we found was that the effect of fairness on wellness is mediated by mattering. Mm. Because when people experience fairness in their lives, they feel valued and they have opportunities to add value. And it's interesting in empirical studies that we conducted using structural equation modeling, we found that the impact of fairness on wellness is almost completely mediated by the experience of mattering. Mm. So in a we culture, to go back to your question, we pay attention not just to happiness, but also not just to wellness and happiness, but also to fairness and worthiness Mm. and mattering. That's the we culture we need to create, where we balance happiness with fairness. That's wonderful. And I I like how you characterize it as a responsibility, too. So... um, Mm -hmm. You did talk about fairness. I was going to ask you about fairness and fairness being important to mattering. And thank you for that. But I guess I'm going to ask you now, what are the ways we can support people experience, how how we can help people experience being valued? And what are ways we might leave people feeling devalued? There are actually many ways to do both. Um, Some of them are seemingly benign you know when when you don't say hello to your co-worker whom you encounter you know in the hallway when you just ignore people when you don't answer their emails when you don't say hello these are seemingly banal examples of ignoring other people but all our behaviors send messages Mm, yeah and and for some people, these messages may be interpreted, oh, there, there goes Isaac. He's so, he's so arrogant. He doesn't have time for me to say hello. <laughs> mm. uh, so that is an absolute message of I, I devalue you as a human being. You're not worth my attention. And I don't need to answer your email. I don't need to follow up with you. I can ignore you physically, verbally, <laughs> emotionally, spiritually, etc. And of course, there are more grave ways, such as bullying at work or domestic violence and all the way up to police brutality, right? So one can imagine how different systems, not just persons, but how systems make you feel devalued. So I'll, 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 I'll give you... A national example, because it's easy to think about many interpersonal examples, you know, abuse, neglect, bullying, etc. But it also happens at the national level. You know, I grew up in Argentina under a fascist dictatorship. When the military knocks on your door because you attended a demonstration against fascism and they disappear you, that's a, that's a way of telling you we don't value you as a citizen. We're going to disappear you. Mm. And my sister was a political prisoner in Argentina. She was sent to exile, and I had several of my friends killed for doing just what I said, for demonstrating against fascism. 
lesser ways in which governments make you feel devalued. So, for example, you know, I lived in countries like Australia and Canada where we all had universal healthcare. So I felt valued by my government. I didn't have to prove that I have a job or that I have Aetna or United mm. or Kaiser Permanente or whatever. It, the government looked after our health and it's a signal that the government values you. In the US, the government doesn't value you very much. We have millions, tens of millions of people with either no healthcare or inadequate healthcare, mm-hmm. right? So if you can think about that, as a citizen, I feel like I don't matter here, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so there are many ways to make you feel like devalued. Mm-hmm. Okay, how do we make you feel valued? Okay, that's the other part of your question. I think it starts because we're all embodied psychological beings. We have to pay attention to our experience of humanity. And it starts, as I said, by saying hello to people, by treating them with dignity, by building on their strengths, by building on their assets, by making them feel that they can make a contribution to the workplace, to the community, not not focusing on their deficits or weaknesses, but focusing on on their dignity and what is it that they can contribute. Not as one what people don't have, but what do people do have? Hmm. And the more we focus on their strengths, the more we make people feel your presence is important to me. And it starts at the interpersonal level. Um, and I'll just give you a quick example because it's stuck in my mind um, for many years. When I became Dean of the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Miami, um, I used to make a point of stopping by the receptionist and saying hello. And she was this super smart, vivacious, uh, terrific woman. And the first time that I did that and I stopped by her counter, she started crying. Hmm. And, and, and I said, What's going on? And she said, the previous dean was here for 10 years and he didn't even know my name. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so that just gives you an example of it, it matters to treat people with dignity. It really matters. Now, in the workplace, one way to make you feel valued is to give you opportunities for leadership. And maybe... If you're a leader, and I was, I was a dean, I was a vice provost, it was my job to identify people's strengths and give them an opportunity to grow in their jobs. And it doesn't mean always we need to give people um, a formal promotion, but but sometimes just asking for their opinion. You know, like you go to them and say, like, you know, I I respect your opinion. I'm having this problem. What do you think? It can be as simple as that. It can be as elaborate as mentoring somebody to become the next dean or <laughs> vice provost or whatever, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also matters at the systemic and policy level how to make how we make people feel valued. Um, I, I'll just give you an example from community psychology. There is a, a very successful program. It's it's called Housing First to help people in homelessness situations. Mm-hmm. And my dear colleague, Jeff Nelson, he was one of the big promoters of this program in Canada and internationally. And I know a lot about it because of my friend Jeff. And Housing First says to people who are homeless, we're not going to put a lot of conditions for you to get a house. First, we're going to help you get housing. And then if you have an addiction or a mental health problem, we're going we're gonna to work on that too, obviously. But there are many programs to house people who are homeless that first impose so many conditions, get right. clean, right. you know, go to this treatment, that treatment. You know, it doesn't work. No. Uh, so it's an example of giving people dignity by looking after their basic needs first, right? Mm. So I'm just going to say one more thing about this, uh, how to make people feel valued, Chris. Hmm. And I think it's important to consider both 
objective resources and subjective resources. So subjective resources are, for example, offering emotional support to someone. You know, your colleague is going through a hard time. Well, maybe you offer to listen or just being a good friend, being there for them. Maybe your friend got a promotion and you show interest and you're excited for them. So these are subjective, emotional, psychological ways of supporting somebody, making them feel valued. But there are also objective ways to make people feel valued. As I was saying before, give them housing, give them universal health care, mm -hmm. give them objective things they need, give them a good schooling for their kids, you know, give them early childhood education for free. There are so many objective resources that we have the obligation to give people and not put conditions before they can get the objective resource, right? So in this country, unless you have a decent job, you don't have a good healthcare, mm -hmm. right. right? So it's like, oh, first have a decent job, you know, and then we'll, we'll see if we can give you this, that, or the other. So I just think it's very important to always remember, especially for the radical therapist audience, you know, <laughs> that we, we keep in mind the subjective and the objective resources people need. Wonderful. Yes, thank you for that. Um, my next question is about positivity, and uh, you know, positivity these days is often critiqued as potentially being toxic you know, for various reasons. But you write that adding value coupled with positivity is important, and I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Mm -hmm. If I go back to the example I gave about building on people's positive attributes and strengths. Um, and I'll just start by giving you a, a very personal example. Mm. Um, when I was eight years old, I lost both of my parents in a car accident. Mm. And you can imagine, very traumatic. Right. Um, and I remember as a kid, my teachers, uh, my relatives, uh, focusing on Isaac, the orphan, and pitying me. And I felt a great sense of pity projected onto me. Mm. And part of me wanted to tell them, look, I'm still here. I'm still a, a good friend. I'm still a very good soccer player. <laughs> I, I, I'm still doing a lot of good things. And could anybody please focus on that too? Hmm. You know, I'll give you another personal example. Um, my wife of 40 years or uses a wheelchair. She has muscular dystrophy. She's been using a wheelchair for many, many years. Um, so people often focus on the disability as opposed to the person. My wife is a very smart person. She was a professor for many years, and she's an incredibly mature, wise, competent, caring person. Um, so we have had so many encounters where people looked at the disability before they looked at the person. Mm. So Ora has incredible talents and resources. And I had two as a kid, you know, and... Can we please focus on your positive attributes? Okay. Mm. Now, about the critique of positivity. When positivity becomes a pillar for a me culture, that's a serious problem. Right? Mm. Uh, so we talked earlier about the me culture. Right. And there are many positivity uh, trends today that feed into that that feed into what's important is that I take time out because the world is hard, so I need to take care of number one first and blah, 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 blah. I do not believe that positivity must always go along just with individualism. Uh, we can have positivity of the collective. Hmm. Um, how, how can we appreciate people who grow up in poverty, for example? How can we really celebrate their, in, their ingenuity of coping with very difficult circumstances, but yet being smart, managing, coping, handling very tough situations. 
So I don't want positivity to be kidnapped just by the me cultures, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I also want to make sure that we acknowledge strengths of everybody, including people who struggle. Wonderful. Okay. Um, in your book, you also go beyond just the personal and psychological aspects of mattering and address its societal and political aspects. And I'm wondering if you can say more about that. Right. So it's very interesting if we go back to the examples I gave about the people who feel marginalized gravitating towards uh, populist leaders. Mm-hmm. For example, which is an example we see around the world, right? We saw this, we see this today in Turkey, you know, they just had elections and it looks like Erdogan is going, he still may win the runoff of the election. And and we have Viktor Orban in Hungary and we had our very own Trump. We still have him around here. Mm. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. And if you look at so many countries around the world, um, the Philippines, uh, El Salvador, there are so many uh, populists who are really exploiting people's lack of mattering for their own political advantage. And that's a very risky situation. So this is really at the nexus of the psychological and the political. And it's so important to provide people with a sense of mattering so that we can prevent gravitating uh, towards extremist uh, points of view that tend to go along with denigration of other groups and xenophobia, et cetera, et cetera. And because there are so many lost souls in a me culture, there is so much loneliness. Uh, There are so many people who feel completely isolated and abandoned. There are many people who will by the populist message. And that is extremely risky. Uh, So I think there is room for mattering education, for psychosocial interventions um, that really pair, pair the psycho with the social, psychological health with social health, with cultural health, with political health. So I I do some work. I'm affiliated with a Norwegian university. I'm part of a research center on on welfare and sustainability. And we're doing some work on well-being economies. Hmm. And we're looking at what are some countries doing um, to prioritize psychological health and mattering. If you really dissect what early childhood intervention programs, child abuse prevention programs, um, parenting support, a lot of the social interventions, social programs that countries build, they are about helping children feel that they matter and giving them an opportunity to matter by improving their education, upgrading their skills. So I believe that well-being economies are trying to focus on how to make everybody feel that they matter. Mm. Um, There is a lot of work to be done, and there are two possible problems with advanced economies. One is that on one hand, uh, you may provide a lot of resources to people. Let's say Norway, you know, or the or, or the Scandinavian countries. 
they provide a lot of resources to people. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, really, it's a luxury, you know, to be a citizen of these countries in a way. But it's not enough. You know, it's not enough to give you health, free health care and free education. You also need to be treated with respect and kindness by social services, by teachers, by doctors, etc. Mm -hmm. So I go back to the importance of objective and subjective resources. And on the other hand, we always need to give subjective with objective resources. It's not enough to, you know, you can... You can do therapy until the cows come home. But if people are poor and hungry, right. you know, we're not going to make much progress. Right. And so I just want to put a plug, not for my book, How People Matter, which is the book you're reading from, but, <laughs> but I want to put a plug for a recent book by Matthew Desmond called Poverty by America. I just read it. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it an incredible yeah, book? Yeah, highly recommend. Yeah, just read it. Yep. Yeah, so it really gives you a sense of the dignity challenges that people growing up in poverty go through. You know, or just another recent example, the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Hmm. Another incredible book about uh, growing up um, black in America or lower caste in India. Right, right. Anyways, there, there are... What I like about these authors is that not only do they describe the sociological and economic and political conditions affecting people, but also the dignity wounds hmm. that all these policies inflict on people. And so that's, for me, fairness, wellness, and worthiness is this very important triangle fairness, wellness, and worthiness that attend to the subjective and the objective needs of human beings. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, you also write about the pra practicing self-regard, and I'm wondering, how do we practice self-regard? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's part of being responsible to oneself. Hmm. Um, and if you look at really, I would say, the best of positive psychology or the best of therapeutic interventions, mindfulness, self-compassion. Um, there are very many good skills and techniques that all of us should embrace to make sure that we are psychologically and physically and socially healthy. Um, and we can think about um, self-compassion and treating ourselves with the same kindness that we want to treat our friends or family members with or our neighbors, right? So I really, I really believe that self-compassion and mindfulness are really, really important. And there are many serious thinkers and writers who do not believe that self-compassion should lead to a me culture, but rather to a we culture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's the analogy when you board a plane and they say, you know, please put your oxygen mask first before you help your child or your spouse. It's a very good analogy mm -hmm. because if you have no psychological energy or physical energy to help yourself, you're not, you're, you're going to be no good for other people either, right? You can't help others if you're not psychologically, physically healthy. So I'm a big proponent of treating yourself kindly and developing the discipline required um, to build psychological health, uh, to ask for help when you need it. Uh, to be vulnerable when you can. Hmm. Um, and, and to celebrate others and, and, and start this virtuous cycle. You know, you love me, I want to show that I love you too. So we have this mutual responsibility so that you can be there with me hmm. when I need you. Um, I think psychologists know a great deal about our cycle emotional needs 
And we need to pay attention to those. We don't need to stop there. We need to go beyond that so that we can go towards a we culture and we can affect also policies and not just emotions, but they're both important. Yeah, and that leads me to my next question. Uh, you write about abundant or co cohesive communities, and I'm, I'm wondering what role does mattering play in like those kinds of communities and also just relationships in general? Well, mattering is the glue hmm. of a cohesive community. And what's interesting about that is that successful communities, maybe faith communities or neighborhoods or organizations can also be communities, uh, what they do, they structure time and space and rituals and traditions to make sure that everyone feels valued and have an opportunity to add value. Uh, so they have very elaborate, successful communities have very elaborate ways of giving you an important role. Um, so in successful communities, everyone has a role, an important job. Um, maybe you are in charge of the social committee or the organizing committee or X or Y task force. But successful communities make sure that everyone has an opportunity to feel like I'm adding value here. Hmm. Um, and there are, as I said, very elaborate rituals, ways of making you feel included. And you cannot build a community without FaceTime. So this is why meals are important and rituals. And this is why people go to church and mosques and temples and they spend time with others and they celebrate. And uh, because that FaceTime, especially during celebrations, it builds community. And, and if you've ever been part of a community of friends, uh, you know what it feels like when you're going through a hard time and other people just are there for you. Mm. Um, mm. It brings me to tears sometimes. Mm. You know, like we, sometimes at home we go through difficult situations. My wife's health is very precarious right now. Mm. But I have friends who have shown so much love to me and my wife and family members. It really, it, so they show up for you, mm. right? So they make me feel valued. They said, no, you, you know, I want to be there for you. But in turn, they ask me for help when I can help them. Mm. So it's really very simple, Chris. You know, yeah. like <laughs> what, we, what we should be asking ourselves is how can I make Greece feel valued, and how can I make Greece feel like he's adding value? Mm -hmm. These are really, it's two very simple questions. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of complicated psychology around it, you know, in-group bias, the dark side of mattering, attachment. There are many complicated dynamics behind it. But at the end of the day, what human beings want is to feel valued and add value. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that leaders, bosses, workplaces, each one of us think about that. What can I do to add value to myself and feel valued and do the same for others? Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Two more questions. And you kind of touched on this a little bit about kind of in being face to face and we're in the midst of a technological revolution. Artificial intelligence is here. And I, I guess I wanted to ask you about what do you imagine, how, or even social media too, how, how is that affecting mattering or meaning-making in your mind? Well, it's interesting that the Surgeon General last, last couple of days just yeah, put out right. a big report on the impact of social media on teens uh, and youth and and predictably, the the news are not good. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is there is definitely research on that, that the more you use social media, the more depressed you become. Uh, of course, there are healthy ways of using social media. If you use it for short periods of time and you use it for beneficial uh, purposes, like seeking information, etc. So needless to say, there are many good uses of 
social media, but uh, teens uh, easily become addicted to social media. And the key psychological negative mechanism is the comparison effect. Because people are always in social media, you know, comparing themselves to more successful, more competent, more beautiful, more popular, wealthier, richer, muscular, sexier people than they are. And it's a no-win situation, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the the, the effect on that is that you are hyper-exposed to these unattainable images of what the me culture wants you to become, you know, consume. I live in Miami, you know, plastic surgery is the number one industry here. Mm-hmm. You know, people want to look better, feel sexier, um, have more money, bigger cars, more jewelry, whatever. <laughs> and it just, it's a never ending game, right? So this consumerism, you're consuming images in social media. You're always comparing yourself and you're always you're always losing because there is always somebody who has it better than you, right? So that leads to negative internalization. I'm not as good as the rest of the world. So the psychological principles are not really that complicated. It's Mm. you you are exposed to a lot of toxicity in social media. Um, And it's really become so addictive because the media platforms are very good at getting you addicted. So you get this dopamine hit, you know, every time you click or you see how many people like you, whatever that is. Mm. So I believe the effects are very toxic, to tell you the truth. Of course, there are good usages and there was research done during COVID-19, you know, when people couldn't see others face to face, they use WhatsApp and Zoom and all that's fantastic. I love that. Um, but there is there is the dark side of technology, which I would just summarize by saying downward comparisons hmm. that people are ill-equipped to handle. Um, so that's about that's my take on the <sighs> the hyper explo- exposure to social media. Thank you for that. Um, okay, last question. Um, I, this is a question I like to ask all my guests, and it's really about, you know, what books or films or th- ideas or thinkers are capturing your attention these days? What's, what's, what are you curious about these days? Yeah, well, thank you for the question. Um, so, as I said before, the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson yeah. um, made a big uh, impression on me, the, the way she deals with racism and classism. Um, and I also mentioned just the book Poverty by America by uh, Matthew Desmond. Mm-hmm. And I am highly impacted by a Harvard philosopher, a communitarian by the name of Michael Sandel. Hmm. And a very um, important book that he wrote recently, it, it's about meritocracy. Um, it's about the ill effects of meritocracy and what it does to people. Mm -hmm. So when you think about meritocracy, it's the anti-mattering. Okay, yeah. Because unless you are smart or successful or or self-made in this country, you're worth it. Right. So there are many... um, So Michael Sandel has done tremendous work uh, demonstrating the culture of meritocracy and its toxic negative effects um, on people. So these are um, interesting books I read recently and also along the lines of being self-made and um, wrong solutions to our social ills. Um, I want to recommend work by Anand Giridharadas. Mm. And, oh gosh, the name of his book is 
Uh, it has the word winners uh, <laughs> in it. Uh, let me just... Uh, I, I have the book. I haven't read it yet. I'm trying to remember the title, too. <laughs> uh, yes, Win Winners Take On. There it is, yep. Yeah, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Right. Um, and he really takes aim at a lot of the saviors in our society who have this savior complex who are going to come and uh, fix all the social ills, maybe with entrepreneurship or the latest startup or some technology. Right. And Giri Daradas does a fantastic job of debunking uh, all of that. Wonder. Yeah. Um, so these are some of the things that occupy me uh, these days, and they all have to do uh, with the intersection of wellness, fairness, and worthiness. Yeah. So for me, that's the really important triangle that occupies me these days. Yeah. What conditions of fairness can lead to real solutions for wellness and it all happens through mattering yeah well that thank you that's an excellent place to stop and i, I just want to say thank you for making the time and sharing with all our listeners and listeners all have the links to actually their book um uh, but also some of the uh, the books that were mentioned too i'll have that links and i just want to one more time i just want to say dr prilatensky thank you for coming on the podcast well, thank you for the opportunity, Chris. I, I enjoyed the chatting with you. Wonderful. All right. That's our show. And as always, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I do. These are one of those podcasts when I meet with somebody, listen to somebody, it just makes me want to be a better person. So uh, I hope that I hope if had that same sort of effect for you. Um, as always, come find The Radical Therapist at The Radical Therapist on Instagram. Uh, there's a Radical Therapist Facebook page. Um, you can email me uh, with any comments, questions, guest suggestions, that kind of thing at theradicaltherapist at gmail.com. Be happy to hear from you. And thank you for the, the nice notes from a few of you um, in the last episode when I talked about my mother's passing. Uh, I appreciate those notes. So thank you for that. And uh, yeah, so as always, this has been the Radical Therapist Podcast. I'm Chris Hoff, and thanks for listening. Peace.